here today. I hope you caught that in that First John 4 passage. It was verse 10 or 11. And Matt was just reading to us, Beloved, you are beloved. And I hope you get that today. I hope you realize how loved you are, not just by me, not just by like other members of this church, if you're a member of this church, not by just the people in your small group, but God loves you. And so that enough should be worth, you know, parking and getting kids dropped off and being in here just to know and experience that, that God loves you. And I, I hope you get that today, regardless of what else gets said and who you interact with. And we're going to celebrate baptisms later, and that's going to be awesome. And we're going to open up the Word, and God's going to speak to us. But I hope that you get that, that you are loved, that you are called the Beloved. And uh, I was thinking about this week how much I love uh, pastoring this church, how much I love my church. And one of the reasons why is we started this marriage series called Marriage Matters. And this isn't the only reason why I love this church, but one of the reasons why is y'all don't play around. And uh, we started one week, we just laying the groundwork last week for what we're going to say in this series, and people are already getting serious about working on their marriages. And so some folks that were great marriages are going deeper and, and focusing on those things, and, and some folks, their marriages are really struggling, and they got honest about that and are ready to take some steps. And so, you know, we talk about Acts chapter 2 and how we want to live that out together as a church family, but we come to another topic, you know, whether we talk about, you know, stewardship, or we talk about making disciples, and we talk about marriage, and, and you guys are not content to, like, come to church and hear a lecture or an inspirational talk. Now, some people, that's what you want. I totally get that, and usually they don't stay around for a long time, just so you know. But those of you, this is your church. I would not want to pastor a church that that's what it was about, just getting, you know, a moment pumped up and head on out of here but y'all want to live this out. And so I just want to say you're awesome. <laughs> That's essentially what I'm telling you. No, but, but for real, like, I love that you guys want to actually say this stuff that we say in this book, we actually believe it, and we want to live it out. And so keep doing that. <laughs> I'll spur you on to love and good deeds. But I'm going to pray for us. We're going to continue in our series. We're actually going to be in the, the same passage we were in last week. We're just going to talk about some different verses. In Ephesians chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and jump there right now. But I'm going to pray for us. I pray for you regularly. I pray for our church. I pray for your marriages. And I'm going to pray for that right now together before we open up the scriptures. So let's pray. Father, thank you uh, that you're our father. We don't just use that title lightly, that you are a father and a good father guides and provides and protects. And you've done that. And you do it through your word. You do it with your people. You've done it with your, your Holy Spirit living in us. Father, thank you for providing salvation through your son, Jesus Father, thank you for being such an amazing planner that before time began, you planned good works for us to do, and, and some of that happens in the context of our marriages, and I pray for those of us who are married today, that you'd speak into our marriages, that, that we wouldn't leave here and go, oh, I didn't know that, but we would be changed. And I pray for those that are not married. Some have the gift of singleness, some don't want to be single, some are just waiting, it's not time right now, some have become single, unwanting, a divorce, or, or things along those lines. And I pray that you would speak into their hearts today, too, how they, they can be complete and they can put the gospel on display, but marriage is a unique platform to do that. And I pray that you speak to each one of us, your word, exactly what you want to say. As I say words, have hundreds of conversations with folks as, as you speak to them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, last week we were really laying the foundation for this series as a whole. And we talked about marriage, and we're talking about the Marriage Matters series is really about the matters of marriage, different issues that happen within marriage. And so we're, we started this off talking about how there's all these different ideas, and we all get these different thoughts about marriage from different places. For some of us, it comes from fairy tales. And so there's the Cinderella story of, you know, Prince Charming meets his princess. She never smells bad. He's apparently charming, even though he never talks, at least in the original that we get this idea that as a guy, you've got to find Mrs. Wright, or as, as a lady, you've got to find Mr. Wright, and we totally neglect the thought that we're not Mr. or Mrs. Wright, 
that we're a mess and we bring our mess into our marriage. And that makes it a mess. Even if there was a theoretical other perfect person, which there isn't, by the way, then we would mess it up. And then some people know that it's messed up and then they become cynical. And so while you have an overly romanticized idea from coming from fairy tales, you've got other people that have been burned in relationships, difficulties, and so you hear statements like this, I don't need a piece of paper to tell me that I'm, I'm in love with you. And so the idea there is not a complete view of love. It's just this passion. It's just this emotion that we have for somebody. And there is passion. There is emotion in love. But the paper is a sign of your commitment. So what are you going to do when the passion fades? Are you committed? And the reality is most aren't. That's why cohabitation is on the rise and marriage is on the decline. Then you've got other people that think that marriage is just a cultural thing, that it started for family's sake because of names and reputations or business reasons. It's a civil union so that you can you know, have an insurance policy together and there are financial benefits to it and tax deductions and, and they think that's why it was from. And so what we did last week is we went back to the beginning when there was one man and one woman and there were no taxes. What a glorious day. It's before sin. And we saw that the foundation and anything that we say biblical about marriage comes from Genesis 2.24. And Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father. And the reason at that point was companionship. There's multiple reasons for marriage. Sometimes it's for sexual fulfillment, 1 Corinthians 7. Sometimes it's for procreation, Genesis chapter 1. But then we saw the ultimate reason for it is in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, where Genesis 2.24 gets quoted. And then Paul reveals a mystery that hasn't been told until that point in the Bible. And the mystery is this, that if you just go after your marriage, you're chasing a shadow. That marriage isn't about marriage. So it's not about the man. It's not about the woman. It's ultimately about Christ and the church. And so that marriage, ultimately, if you focus on that, you won't have a great marriage because you're going to miss the point. The point is that marriage, like a shadow, a parable, an analogy, it points to something else. And it points to Christ's love relationship with the church. And so all that's to lay the foundation. Some of you be like, I got it. I got that. I agree with that, Scott. I'm with you. But how does it work? What does that actually look like in my house? What do these other people do? I know what happens in my house. What happens? Are they all just studying their Bibles all the time? Like, how do you make this happen? And let me just ask you this question. What do you think that my wife and I do at our house? Do I only exist to you on this stage? Do you think, some people think, because I'm a pastor, that my wife and I, we just sit at home, we read our Bibles, and then we sit on the couch and hold hands and smile until the next church service comes. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's it. That's the existence. And so today we're going to talk about how this works. So last week we were in Ephesians chapter 5, we looked at verses 31 and 32, which is really the underlying everything that's said in Ephesians chapter 5 about husbands and wives. Today we're going to back up, we're going to start reading in verse 21, we're going to read all the way through verse 33, and we're going to see how it works. And each one of us, husband and wife, have a role. And so if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5, the verse will be on the screen if you didn't bring a Bible, but if you brought a Bible, then you can see the whole context. And the context, I told you last week, Ephesians is structured, it's really simple. It's six chapters as a whole book. The first three chapters, all about God. There's not a single command for you to do in the first three chapters. First three chapters, it's like Matt read when he was leading us in worship, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. In fact, it says that we're without hope. You've got no hope apart from Christ. No hope at all. If you, you don't have a relationship with Christ, you're without hope because you're without God. Now you're walking around, you're living, you're like a zombie. You're spiritually dead inside. It's bad news. But the next part's key. But God. Not you, but God, God who was rich in mercy, loved you. Remember that from the beginning? Beloved, God loved you. He loved you so much, he'd adopt you into his family. How did he do that? Well, he had to pay for that adoption through his son Jesus on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he was taking the wrath of your sin, of my sin, of your lust, of my jealousy, of your pride, my anger, all of our sins, we all have it. 
That was being nailed on Jesus on the cross. And he made you alive because he is alive. Because he is risen. You're still with me. Some of you are here for Easter. How about that? And, and that's what the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about. The first three chapters says you've been given, when you trust Christ as your Savior, you're given the Holy Spirit to live inside of you as a deposit. Let me tell you what that means. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, it's the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's in you. And so what happens is, when you are given commands, you can't do the commands. What we're going to talk about today, you're not capable, just so you know. But when God gives you a commandment, he gives you the power to fulfill that commandment. So not only is it God who saves you, it's God who empowers you to be able to obey him. So that way, God's the one who gets all the glory. So he, sa- he does all the work for your salvation. He also does all the work for your sanctification, which is you becoming more like Jesus. Because you have the Holy Spirit deposited in you. So chapter 3 transitions with this passage that talks about, I want you to know this love that surpasses knowledge. This love that's the height, the depth, the length, the width. Now to him who's able... How can you know something that's beyond knowledge? You experience it. You can experience it. You can't comprehend it, but you can live it. It's now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine, according to the power that's at work within you, to him be the glory in the church and throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And then chapter 4, now we go, boom, 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 boom. Commands start coming. Chapter 4, verse 1, live your life in a, a worthy manner of all the stuff that was said in the first three chapters. Chapter five, verse one. To all Christians, not just men, not just women, all Christians, be imitators of God. Walk in his love. Live out that love. I can't. I can't do this stuff, chapter four. I can't do this stuff, chapter five. Okay, well, here's the key. Verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Walk in harmony with the Spirit, and the Spirit empowers you, and it talks about what that looks like, and it's an altogether, not better, not just better, different life than anybody else is living out there because you're empowered by the Spirit of God in your life to do things other people would never naturally do. And it talks about it, the way that you talk to one another, the song that would be in your heart. In fact, three of the four things that are mentioned have to do with your, the worship. And then the fourth thing we'll start reading, and it's the context for our passage, verse 21. All Christians submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And so again, no room for polygamy, no room for the, the wacky definitions that are oftentimes out there, the gender debates that we oftentimes have. It's between one man and one woman, and we get the woman, how she's to, to, to live this out. In verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In verse 25, now let's transition to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. Verse 26, that he, talking about Jesus, might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here Paul's talking about the church. Like Jesus calls himself the bridegroom in the Gospels, talking about the church as the bride, which might be weird for some of us that are men that are in the church, but you're Jesus' bride. If you're the church, you're the beloved, you're part of the bride. But I, I don't know how many of you are married, and I don't know the stats and all that kind of stuff, but if you've ever been to a marriage, ever been to a wedding ceremony, it's a lot of work for the bride to get ready, okay? Looks amazing. That didn't just happen. She didn't roll out of bed that way. May, somebody probably did the makeup, the hair. There was, there was a lot of prayer about the humidity that day, okay? <laughs> and picking the dress out, like all that stuff. But do you notice here that Jesus gets his bride ready? Jesus is the one who gets his bride ready. It's not on you and me as the church to make ourselves ready for Jesus. He's the one doing the work in us, transforming us. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives 
as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because it doesn't say we're like, we are members of his body. Which that makes sense when he's just told husbands, love your wives like your own body. Because remember the most intimate statement in all of scripture, the two become one. She's not like your body, she's you. Genesis 2.24, I mean Ephesians 5.31, same thing. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm not even talking about marriage. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Verse 33 really summarizes the whole thing. And what's being talked about here is how does this thing actually work? How does marriage, how is that meant to work? And by work, I don't mean stay together. By work, I'm talking about how does it actually put Jesus Christ on display? So oftentimes as a church, we talk about our, our vision as a church, that we, want to be, that we want this city to be a city on a hill. That's like grandiose, like I can't reach a whole city for Jesus. But how do we do that? Well, let your light so shine before men, they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, that we live this stuff out that we talk about in the Bible. How does it work as a church? Well, Acts chapter 2, authentic relationships, praying together, grounded in the word, that we be, if somebody else has a need, we give, so even if it's sacrificial to us, so their need is met, that's what it looks like to be a church. What does it look like to apply that to our marriage? So, wives, let your husbands see your good deeds. Wives, let your, their husbands let your wives see, and, and vice versa, and you want opportunity, and so you want to bring it down from the city into, into your marriage? See, those are the kind of marriages that are so not just better, different, that Christ is then put on display. And then the, the point of, of marriage is to connect people to Jesus for life change. Have you ever heard that? And that your marriage would be of such a different quality that people would be drawn to Jesus as a result of seeing it. So that's going to be different than anything else we've seen. So how is that meant to work? Well, let's talk about husbands first, because the majority of this passage actually addresses husbands, and we'll come back to the wives. It's the husbands that you, and every word here matters, lovingly lead your wife. A husband must lovingly lead his wife. Now, this passage is a controversial passage. I totally understand that. In our day and age, equal pay being talked about, women being you know, seen as a lesser, even though it's, you know, it's modern time and all this kind of stuff, that women are oftentimes treated as objects and all kinds of different stuff. To read a passage like this, some of you maybe brought a friend today and you're like, what is he going to say? Am I going to have to do some damage duty at lunch today? Like, how is this going to go? And all of that tension that comes when you come to a passage like this causes us to miss how revolutionary this passage is. This is a radical passage. And let me tell you one of the reasons why. Culturally, when Paul's writing these things, the Roman culture believed that the father, he actually, there was a law for the father that he had the right of, of life and death over his kids. And so oftentimes that was just at birth. It was exercised at birth and it was for abortion. But even as an adult child, the dad actually had authority, if, if a child sinned enough, to have that child killed. Had the authority to step into their marriage once they're already married and say, I want you to get a divorce. And the dad had ultimate, absolute authority. And Paul's going, no. No, no, no. Genesis 2, 24. You cut the apron strings. You've left. Now you cleft. Leave, cleave. You're with your husband. The husband is the authority. And so husbands, you might start to be tempted at this moment to be like, yeah, I am the authority. You do what I say. Start beating your chest. Like, and some Yahoo may leave here today 
after what I say and still be like, no, the Bible said you submit, I'm the leader, then you've missed everything I've said. Because don't forget that when it talks about leadership, where do you get leadership from even? By the way, just go back so you know that I'm not just making this stuff up. In verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself its savior. The headship language is leadership language. It does not mean source, which some people will argue about. There's no, even, there's no use of that when talking about people. And it talks about Jesus as the head of the church. You know what that means? The pastor's not the leader of the church. The elders aren't the leader of the church. The congregation, if you're in a different style church, isn't the leader of the church. Jesus is the leader of the church. So that's why he's able to address the church in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Be like, hey, you don't, y'all don't get your, line, your, your stuff in line here. I'm out of here. I'm done with using you. He's the leader. And so we try to follow his lead. And husbands, you're the leader in the home. What does that mean? Well, remember, Jesus has given a revolutionary definition of leadership. If you were with us when we were going through the book of Mark, he said it like this, if you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the least. You serve. Leadership is service. Jesus, didn't come, Jesus is the leader. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus told us, he said, who's the greatest? The one who's being served at the table or the one who serves the table? And, and you'd think, well, it's the person that somebody's waiting. And Jesus said, no, no, no. I came, I came as a servant and I'm the leader. And so we see it demonstrated in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, what happens is that he's the master, he's the Lord. And he tells them afterwards, you know this, you see this. I was your master and I am your Lord. So he's not denying his, his role, but they're, they're hanging out together. They're, they're going to have the last supper. It's hours away from when Jesus is going to be crucified. And John tells he shows the full extent of his love. That's an interesting statement. And he takes a, his rabbi robe off and he puts a towel on and he washes their feet, even Judas. And when he's done, in John chapter 13, he says this. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, not changing his role, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do as I have done for you. So what Jesus has done is he's redefined leadership. Leadership is service. And so guys, if anybody starts to get like, I am the and kind of beat your chest and say, I'm the leader of this house. And I hope you feel the weight of this. Because leadership is not a right, it is a responsibility for you. Leadership, it's like, it's like at the altar, and you're not, you don't have to be qualified for this, by the way, guys. It's not because you're talented, it's not because you're handsome. Got some handsome guys out here, though, James. You got some, got some good guys out here. That's not why you're the leader, you're home. It's not because you're able, she might be more able than you. It's because of your role, it's positional leadership. And it's handed to you at the altar. And so what's, what happens is like you go to the altar and you say these vows and it's like God hands you this precious jewel and you're going to be held responsible for how you steward that trust. He's given you a trust. There's going to come a day where you, come to, you call to account. And let me tell you something. If all you do is stay married, that's like the guy in Matthew chapter 25 that buries the talent. Hey, I still got my talent. You lost. You live by faith. How does that walk by the Spirit? What does it look like? And leadership, and leadership. So what does it look like to lead? Well, verse 25 tells us what it looks like to lead, and it says this. Now remember, the context, father has life and death authority. Paul's saying, no, the husband's the leader, so here's what it looks like to, and some of you have heard verse 25 read at a marriage or a wedding ceremony, whatever it is, or near counseling. You'd expect this verse to say, husbands, lead well. Husbands, use your power. Husbands, control. But it says, Husbands, love. Husbands, love your wives. 
Does Christ love the church? And the word for love, it's interesting. There's lots of words that could be used. Uh, there's three Greek words that could be used. And certainly it's not saying like we see Song of Solomon if you want passion in love. It's not, there's not emotion in it. He could have used eros love. It's just a sexual kind of love. He could have used phileo, which is a brotherly, a familial family love. But he uses the word agapao. And it means this. Take notes. Write this one down. This is noteworthy, not because it's so great what I'm going to say, but write this down. So I'm telling you, if you don't usually take notes, put this in your phone. We're going to come back to it later. It means this very simply. Putting the other person's interest ahead of your own. Doing what's best for another. Whatever phraseology you like better. better. It's doing what's best for the other person. So let's just pause before we go any further and say this. So loving leadership of a husband is servant-oriented, and it's putting the wife's interest ahead of their own. Husbands, wives, singles, anybody, if we taught this passage accurately, wives would be begging for their husbands to lead. In fact, some are. Some who know this stuff, they are. Because who wouldn't want to be led like this? When you're being led by biblical leadership, you want to follow because you know what's in your best interest. This is this kind of, if you're a single, this is the kind of guy you should be trying to be. If you're, you're a single woman, this is the only kind of guy you should marry. And so some people asked a question. One of the questions that came in for this series, we collected questions that different people asked. What about, you know, unequally yoked is the Christian way to say it. What they're saying is, uh, I'm dating a guy who's not a believer. Can I marry this guy? No, you shouldn't be dating him. There's no way this can happen. Because what I'm about to say to men, they can't do. Apart from the Holy Spirit and apart from relationship with Christ, they don't have the Holy Spirit. So you got no shot. Get out of there. He tells us how to do this love. This is the kind of thing that, like I've got four girls, I've got four daughters. I say, this is the kind of guy you want to marry. He tells us how. Verse 25, we see first of all, and since you're already taking notes, since I told you to do that before, you can write this down. The first kind of love is a selfless love. It's a selfless love. Verse 25, the second half, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, you want to talk about selfless, and gave himself up for her. And so the ultimate picture of selflessness is the cross. It's that Jesus lived a life that we couldn't live, perfection, never sinned. No one took his life. He voluntarily lays it down. He gives himself up. He becomes obedient to death, even the worst kind of death, death on a cross. That's selflessness. Let me tell you something. That's not natural because we're all selfish. I was talking with uh, one of our staff members, Carrie Evans. She is the, uh, in charge of communications, so she gets the bulletins ready and the website communication and all the stuff that you get. She's getting all that all together. She had a baby yesterday. And uh, she, yeah, great little, beautiful little baby boy. His name's Elijah, big boy. If you know her on social media or you want to text her, tell her congratulations. It's great. But she was telling me that she had reached out to my wife about some questions about pregnancy and motherhood and asked for some advice, and we were talking through what some of the advice was. And then I said, hey, if your husband has any questions, you can have, feel free to let him reach out to me because I can tell him a lot of stuff not to do. <laughs> and uh, I told her one story. She said she, just, she got up in the middle of the night and she thought about this story. I, I said, we were, my wife and I, when and our first little baby, Ella, when she was just a little baby, brand new baby, we had her in Arkansas, which is when we were doing a church planting residency to train to come here to get Southbridge started. And we were living in Texas before that and had a house that my wife loved, sold that house, moved into the guest house on somebody else's property, which is a one-bedroom house, and you had to go outside to go upstairs. And so imagine that with a brand new baby. It snows, you got ice on the steps, you go outside. It's raining, it's the umbrella out, carrying the baby. It's, it's some summer, the dust is blowing through there. And she's doing this willingly. And we're sleeping on an air mattress at this place. We left jobs that we loved. We're raising money from all of our friends. 
One night, middle of the night, baby wakes up, needs to be fed. Baby's in our room. It's not a long walk for my wife. She goes over, gets the baby, gets back in bed on this air mattress, and I lean over and say, could you stop bouncing so much when you get in here? And here's the miracle. She didn't punch me in the face. That's, that's the miracle of the moment. So here's my wife. Like, she's willingly following me across the country to a place. We don't know if any people are going to show up at this church. She's sleeping on an air mattress, raising money. And I'm like, hey, the, the baby needs to get some sleep. I'm not talking about the one you're holding. This baby right here. And I can see. She did not punch me in the face. It's amazing. Thank you for being so gracious. And I'm an idiot. The point being, and we're naturally, you want to know how it goes in our house. There's a little glimpse. <laughs> We're selfish. We're naturally selfish. We all look out for ourselves. So some people, they wrote in the question, here's the question. One person said, how do we compromise so that we both feel like we're getting what we want? You don't. That's not your role. This isn't a contract negotiation. You're already under contract. (laughs) Now you give your life for the sake of the other person. What is love? Love is you put their interest I didn't think to myself, oh, here, she just had a baby, which she ended up, by the way, having to go back and have a surgery afterwards for, and it's the first baby, and we're trying to figure this out, and we're sleeping on an air mattress. Did I mention that part? And, and I didn't think about anything. I was just thinking about me. Fail. Major fail. Opportunity for God's grace, the gospel can still be put on display. But what I should be doing is, oh, can I go get the baby? Can I put your interest ahead of my own interest? That's selfless love, and Jesus does it. And he shows us one of the reasons why. You go back to that passage I mentioned earlier, John chapter 13, when he washes the disciples' feet. I always think to myself, that's not the full extent of your love. The full extent of your love is later, the cross. But he's given these tangible demonstrations of selflessness. And what he does, he washes the disciples' feet, but in verses 2 and 3, it tells us why he's able to do that. It's an interesting verse. It's easy just to read over. But in John chapter 13, we'll read verse 3. Jesus knowing, what does he know? Jesus knows everything. But why does, he point to, why does John point this out? Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper, laid aside his outer garments, that's the rabbi robe, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then we know what happens next in the story. But verse 3, he knew who he was. He knew where he was going. Jesus was secure in his identity. Men, one of the reasons why we fail to be selfless is because we're so insecure. I've got to prove, I've got to prove that I'm the leader. I've got to prove what I can do. I've got to prove. No, you don't. In fact, if you think that, read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. It wasn't you. God did it. Gave you a new identity. Gave you hope. Reconciled you vertically so you can be reconciled horizontally. He did all the work. You need to be more secure in your identity in Christ. Then you're free. When the insecurity's gone, you're free. I'm still in process. So lean on his grace and glorify him even when you fail. And so what does it look like to give your life for your wife? Well, most of you probably aren't going to be able to take a bullet for your wife. Maybe it'll happen. And some of you are willing for that. But let me tell you what you are going to get the opportunity to do. Die to yourself daily. So we're supposed to be putting Christ on display. Go read later on your own, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily. Let me tell you something, men. A great avenue for that is get married. (laughs) You have plenty of opportunities to die to yourself. Trust me. So I'm not asking you if you're brave enough to die for your wife in some like heroic event. But will you die for your wife in dying to your own desires for the sake of hers? Dying for the sake of serving her, putting her interest above your own, her dreams, her desire. Do you even know those things? Well, let's keep going because there's more than just selfless love. We could talk more just about selfless love. Some of your husbands are like, no, go, keep moving. (laughs) 
but there's a lot more here. I want you to know that. The next kind of love we'll talk about is a transforming love. And you look at it in verses 26 and 27 when, when Paul's talking about how the church is Jesus' bride. Which, by the way, too, this is a little side note. It's not possible for people to say, I love Jesus, I hate the church. <laughs> Come up to me after the service and say, I really like you, I hate your wife. We're not going to be friends. That doesn't work. It's his bride. And so you look here, it says in verse 26, about this transforming love that he might sanctify her. That's transformation, change her. And set her apart is the literal translation of that word. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He's transforming the church into this holy, set-apart, totally transformed group of people. And Jesus is the one that's doing it. And so get this, husbands, a little pressure comes off here. It's not your job to transform your wife. That's not what I'm talking about when I talk about transforming love. Only Jesus can transform us. I'm not talking about changing someone's behavior. Unless she's got some bad habit, I'm just going to nag her about it until she stops or whatever. Thing. No, pray for her. In fact, you can't love your wife if you don't pray for her. Amen. The transformation happens by Jesus, and it's at the heart level. So the question for us husbands is this. What are we doing to get our wives to Jesus? Because you're going to love her with transforming love, then you try to get her to Jesus. Foster environment so she can grow in Jesus. Does she, does she have time to be in the Word? Are you providing that? You're providing an environment where it's conducive for that. Is she more holy because she's married to you? Here's the real question, husbands. Does your wife love Jesus more as a result of being married to you? Or are you in the way? When she reads Hebrews chapter 12, throw off everything that hinders, do you come to mind? If so, that is a problem. But what you bring into the home, what you do around the home, the conversations you have, is she more holy as a result of the conversations that you're having? Is she more on mission? Is she better at making disciples, whether that's of your kids, of the neighbors, of her friends, of her coworkers, of the people in their neighborhood? Is she better at that, living on mission as a result of being married to you? That's transforming love. How do you do that? You get her to Jesus. And you're the leader, so you've got to go there yourself. You might only be a quarter of a step in front of her. Not even a half step. You're just, but we're going together, and you're just leading the way. But you can't, everybody knows in leadership, you can't take somebody where you haven't been. So guys, if you want this to happen, what's paramount is your relationship with Jesus. We said last week, you want to increase your intimacy with your wife? Increase your, increase your intimacy with Jesus. You, you have to be with Jesus. You want to be more united with your wife? Have better union with Christ. You, you want to be closer and more intimate? Be closer and more intimate with God. Because as the vertical is transformed, the horizontal will be transformed. And so men, you want transforming relationship, transforming love to be demonstrated, then you be transformed by Jesus Christ yourself. Ask him to refine you. How, what does it look like for you to be set apart? What does it look like for you to be different? What does it look like for you to be more holy? And as he transforms you, you'll bring that transforming love into your home. I remember my mentor, he's, the, he's actually the father of the young lady that was playing the keyboard today and uh, sang that last song, Oh How He Loves Us. He told me when we were just first meeting together, he said, I've prayed for my daughter since she was a little girl that she would marry a man who would take her to her highest spiritual potential. Now, I've got four daughters, and I'm competitive. So I told my mentor, I said, I'm going to do your prayer. I said, I pray for my daughters that they will marry a man who will take them beyond their highest spiritual potential. And, not, and I got Bible. I got not a him who's able to do beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. So I go to that. He's like, that's fine. You stand on my shoulder, Scott. Totally great. So I give him credit for giving me the foundation there. 
And Nikki, she's married to a great guy. He's our executive pastor and leads, he's not perfect, but he leads her and leads in that home spiritually because he's trying to grow in his relationship with Jesus. And he's in the word. I've walked in on him before, just in the word, got transformed. And so that's what happens. And so then I tell my daughters, hey, that's what you want in a guy, that. And so men, if you're single, that's the kind of man you're trying to become. If you're a woman, don't marry anybody. Don't settle for less than God's best for you. That's what you're looking for. And if you are married and you're not that, repent. Go back. Become that. There's some of you, some, I told you, there's folks that have reached out that their marriages are struggling. One piece of counsel that I give sometimes is based on a passage of Scripture, and it's not really what the passage of Scripture is about. I'm not ripping out of context, so let me tell you. It's in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5, talking to this church, Ephesus, a generation later, so it's like the kids, saying, hey, you lost your first love. And so sometimes I'll say to married couples, taking the principle of that, as Jesus speaking to a church, but I say the principle of that, and I'll say to couples, what? did you love each other at one time? And so what Jesus says in Revelation 2.5 is repent and do the stuff you did at the beginning. I say, go back to the beginning. Go, go back there. And what was it you were doing? And something changed. And that takes us to our next one, which is a treasuring love. Look at the next few verses together. A treasuring love, if you're taking notes. In verse 28, it says this, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. It doesn't mean that, every, what I'm about to read doesn't mean that everybody loves their body like they think that they look awesome, like they're tall enough or they're short enough or they lost enough weight or whatever stuff. It means that when you're hot, you turn the air conditioning down. It means when you're cold, you put on a sweatshirt. When you're hungry, you eat food. You're aware of your own needs. Husbands, are you aware of your wife's needs? They're not all physical. In fact, those are the hardest ones for me. <laughs> They're emotional sometimes. Does she, do you know when she needs to be encouraged? Do you know when, when she's drifting from the Lord? Everybody goes through dry seasons spiritually. Do you know when your wife is going through those seasons? Are you sensitive to that? And are you praying about I'm not, You don't need to meet those needs. That's not your job, actually. But are you praying for her about those needs? See, it says here, everyone, everyone loves his own body, his own flesh. For no one ever hated his own flesh, and then get these verbs, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Why does Christ do that to the church? Verse 30, because we're members of his body. Now we're like his body. We are his body. She is you. The two have become one. And so you love her like that. Do you nourish her? What does nourish mean? Nourish means to, to give what's necessary for growth. Cherish literally means to make warm. It's the idea of treasuring. That's where I get the idea for this point. Treasuring. This is such a secure truth, by the way, if you love like this. Because it says here, absolutely, no one ever hated his own body. Meaning, hey, if you're in danger, you protect yourself. You, you care for your body. So do you care for her like that? Well, the kind of love that cherishes. Cherishes means you treasure and so we go back to saying, hey, what did you do at the beginning? Revelation 2.5, what did you do at the beginning? Well, you were getting to know each other. Let me tell you something, husbands. The woman you're married to today, I don't care if you got married yesterday, is not the same woman you married. And some of you are thinking, that's the problem. <laughs> no, here's the reality. We all change. It's part of life. It's part of growth. And so it's your job. You study her. Study her. Like you would study, like you watched the draft this week if you're a football fan. Like, some, you were reading about guys that went to some school you didn't know existed five minutes ago, okay? And, but you know it's 40 time. <laughs> what do you know about your wife? Computer program? The thing, you want to talk about how stuff works? I mean, some of you, so, so, you're so awesome at learning things that are, out, but learn your wife. 
I was talking with some friends even when we were doing the meet and greet time. Now, Travis is here. I lived in New Zealand for a little while, and uh, they, they saw blue penguins. Now, I didn't know this about blue penguins. Blue penguins apparently have life mates. One male penguin, one female penguin, and they stay together for their whole lives. You can look this up. I've learned it all from them, so if I'm wrong, go beat the Travises up. I, guess. I don't know. Don't send them the email. I'll forward it on. But apparently, one of them goes out every morning and goes fishing, and the other one waits and will call for them, and then they come back, and I think to myself, how do they know who each other are? And do they think all humans look the same? How does this work? You want to know how this works, this marriage thing works? Here's how it works. You keep studying. You keep learning. You're not done. You keep growing. She keeps growing. You keep growing. You want to treasure her? Show her that she's valuable to you. Keep pursuing her. You want to love with a love like he came to seek and save that which was lost. You keep going after her. I don't care if you've been married for 50 years. She's changing. And, and if you're doing your job, you're leading her to Jesus, you're connecting her to Jesus for life change, she's definitely changing. Keep going after her. But I, I can't do this. I, I can't. Perfect. If you're thinking that, you're in the exact right spot. So how? How? You've told me the what to do. How do I do it? Context is always key. What was the context? Remember chapter 4, verse 1? Live a life worthy of the manner that you've been called. Walk worthy of the manner you've been called. The gospel. Chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God. Can't do that. That's right. Remember the immediate context? Be filled with the Spirit of God. Verse 18 through 21. It's as you surrender to Christ, He transforms you, and then He empowers you to do the things He's commanded you to do, which you can't do. And it will be different. But it's, it's, we're not okay, and it's a mess. Okay, it's okay if your marriage is not okay today. It's not okay for you to stay that way. So you've got to take steps to do something about it. And how's God going to transform? There's, he uses his word. He uses his relationship with you. He uses his people. One person wrote me. I put a question on Facebook this week, and several folks responded, and it's going to apply to the last message we do in this sermon series. But several people actually wrote me privately. They didn't want to put it on, on, in front of everybody else. And one person wrote and said, you know what God used to transform our, our marriage? was a safe place to talk about the fact that things weren't okay. But the sad part was, they said next, that wasn't the church. That should be the church. So let me just talk specifically, if you're a small group leader, will you create a safe environment this week and not just assume everybody in your small group is doing okay? Like we're just going to share tips about what's going so well. And maybe we had a mistake like in the past, but now we're okay. Provide an environment where it's, we're struggling. He doesn't lead. She won't submit. Like, whatever the things are that are going on, you can talk about that without judging the other person, letting them be in their mess, but then telling them truth so they can take the next step out of that mess. Because it's not okay to just stay there. But you've got to be safe to acknowledge that it is a reality. So we live out Acts chapter 2 within our marriages and within our church, and God transforms lives, and God was adding to the number daily who was being saved. That's how, as we submit to the Spirit, we can't do this on our own. How is submit to the spirit? How do you submit to the spirit? Well, you come and you surrender. Say, God, I can't do that. I need you. You've told me to do this. This is what I'm supposed to do. I want to do this. Change my desires. And he does the heart work. Show me the next step to take. And it'll be one step at a time. You stay in his word, stay with his people, and he guides you through this process. Now, wives, wives have a role too. So let's go back, go back to the beginning of the passage. In verse 23, it says that you're to submit. In verse 33, it says you're to respect. We're really talking about the same things. And this is where the passage is really controversial. Because that word submit is so scary to folks. But the wife's role is to willingly, and that's crucial, willingly submit to her husband's leadership. And what many people think when we get to this part of the passage is that, that submission means somehow you're less than human. That somehow it's demeaning to you as a person. 
And that's where we've totally missed what submission actually is. And oftentimes that's really because the man has misused the first part of this passage in his leadership and said, you said, I'm the leader, kind of beat on the chest. I got, I mean, you just got to do what I say. That's not what submission means. In fact, the reason why this passage is really a problem goes all the way back to what took place in Genesis chapter 3, which was a failure of roles, by the way. And in Genesis chapter 3, what we end up seeing happens is that what comes out of that, the product of people of the original sin, when there was one man and one woman, and sin, it wasn't taxes, wasn't the next thing, by the way. But the next thing was that she's going to have a desire, she's going to resist his leadership. Leadership, the role of leadership happened before that. In fact, before Eve even existed, God said to Adam, I'm putting you in this garden. It's this perfect place. I got one rule for you. Don't eat of this tree. And then he goes out and he does like a lot of men do. He's awesome at his job. Name all the animals. Some of you guys are killing it, making spreadsheets, serial entrepreneurs, doing all kinds of great stuff at work. But the only thing you're changing at home is the channel. And that's what Adam does. He's a colossal failure with his family. So this woman gets made, they get put in this marriage relationship, and then Eve is the one who sins, by the way. She takes the fruit. But Adam's standing right there. Read the Genesis account, and then he gives, she gives some to him. He failed in his role. He was passive. Then there's a curse in chapter 3. In chapter 3, what ends up happening is we, the product that comes out is either men become passive like Adam, or they become dominant and abuse passages like Ephesians 5. Like, I'm in charge, and so whatever I say, that's what goes in this house. That's not, somebody will leave here today and try that. That's not what we just taught. Or women, women will try to rule over their husband, the passage says. And that's not, you'll have a desire for your husband. It's not a sexual desire. That was natural at the very beginning. The desire is that you're going to take his role. And you're either going to do it by dominating because you're better at it, because you're a bully, or manipulating. And that, I think, is far more dangerous. Because it can manifest itself in sweetness. Kind words. Use your body. You do whatever you have to do to manipulate, to get your way so that you can actually rule. And it all comes out of Genesis 3. But the problem with role, we know that the roles were there from the beginning, and it wasn't an issue of who was better and who was worse. Because they were both created in God's image, Genesis chapter 1. A woman's full image bearer, man's full image bearer. You get to the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3, a passage that's oftentimes abused because they end up saying that everybody's just the same and everything should just be the same. That's fine. It sounds real warm and fuzzy. It's kind of Barney theology you could send you out here with that. But no one knows what to do after that point. And so what happens in Galatians chapter 3, it's talking about salvation, and we are all equal at the cross. It says there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. At the cross, everyone's equal. So you're equal in worth, but you have a different role. And if you don't think that's true, how does it work with kids? Are parents supposed to submit to their children? Now, I'm not talking about kid-centric world that we live in today. When the Bible says, no, that's not how it works. But we're all supposed to submit to one another. You read verse 25, yeah, but you submit as the leader, just like an employer and an employee. An employer does submit to his employees by the way that he leads. But you've got a specific role, equal in value, different in role. And we see that because what happens in Genesis chapter 3, after Eve takes the apple and she, or whatever fruited pomegranate, whatever it was, and she eats it, and God comes looking, he doesn't come looking for them. We created them equal. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, and verse 28, it's real interesting. He says this, and God blessed them. If you have a Bible, you can underline that. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You're both in charge of this world. But he told Adam to be the spiritual leader in the family. He said, this is the tree. You don't eat of it. And when he comes in the garden, even though she took the fruit, he's not looking for them. 
He's looking for him. Amen. Came for the man. And then in Romans, you get to the New Testament. and the New Testament, who sinned first? It was Eve. Don't try to tell God, though. It's this woman that you made. He tried that. It didn't go well. <laughs> but in Romans chapter 5, in verse 12, it says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Adam's accountable. Adam's responsible. That's leadership. So what is submission? It's willingly allowing him to lead. And some of you think to yourself, well, if he'd lead like you just talked about, then I'd submit. Wait, wait, wait. Read your Bible. Ephesians chapter 5. That's not what it says. It's actually a submission as to the Lord. It doesn't mean he is your Lord. It means your submission to his leadership because God gave him that role is actually your obedience to Christ. And so that applies even if he's not even a Christian, just so you know. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And so what does it mean to be subject? What does it mean to be submissive? The Greek word is hubitasso. You can look it up on your own. And it means, well, before I tell you what it, it does mean, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. And It's this little paper here that I jotted down. It's a... Uh, this comes from John Piper's book, A Momentary Marriage. And I'm going to go through these pretty fast so you're not even going to be able to write them down, those of you who are taking notes. But the book is referenced and you can get a free copy of it through our small group study. And so if you don't get that, then sign up for the small group study online. But here's what submission does not mean. Six things. Submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. Amen. Submission does not mean leaving your brain or your will at the wedding altar. Preach. Submission does not mean, and just the women are being so submissive right now. Uh, submission does not mean avoiding every effort to change a husband. Because he's not Jesus. It's as to the Lord. Not that he is the Lord. Sorry, guys, you're not. So you do need to change. Pray for a sub- transformation. Submission does not mean putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. Submission does not mean that a wife gets her personal spiritual strength primarily through her husband. Submission does not mean that a wife is to act out of fear. So what does submission mean? Submission means this, and if you jotted down the definition of love that I gave you earlier, write this down right next to it. Submission means voluntarily surrendering your rights for the sake of another. Some people will just simplify it and say the definition like this. I've heard it like this before. Volunteering in love. And so let me pause there and just say, if you wrote down that definition of love earlier, putting the other person's interest ahead of your own, don't that sound a lot alike? And, and I will just say this pastorally. I have never, ever experienced, never had a conversation of, never seen on TV, never read in a book, never in any experience I've had in life. Now, who knows what will happen out in the lobby afterwards today. But I have never, ever, ever had a couple come to me and say, we're doing that and we're going to divorce. He just is always putting my rights in front of his own. I can't function in this environment any longer. He is, so, he is serving me and always looking out for my best interests, and I am just sick of it. <laughs> I have never seen a husband come. She is always just willingly, voluntarily in love, putting me in an opportunity to fulfill God's plan for me as a leader in this home, and I just can't handle it. Who can lead in this environment? <laughs> if you want to divorce-proof your marriage, do what this passage of Scripture says. So it's not about compromise. It's about laying your life down for the sake of the other and two people doing that simultaneously and it's not just divorce proof. You know what happens? It's so different that you put Christ on display, which is the point of marriage. So we keep looking at the shadow. How do I compromise? I wish, I'm going to wash the car so that hopefully she makes my, my favorite dinner. <laughs> oh, no, it's such a, that is so this world. 
what we're getting is so different. This is Acts 2 stuff applied to the marriage. Laying your life down. And if you think that submitting is like subhuman, then you don't know your Savior very well. Because you're supposed to put Christ on display? Not my will, but yours, Father. The characteristic of his life, do nothing on a selfish ambition. Read all of Philippians chapter 2, or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourself. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, talk about volunteering in love, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but made himself a servant. There's your leadership. It's like both. It's the picture of the husband and the wife, because none of us are full image bearers. We need every person here, all the gifts here, all of that. None of us bear God's image completely. And when the two become one, you got a better shot at putting this on display for the community to see that you'd actually live this out. Jesus became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So submission is not subhuman. Submission is supernatural. It's the work of Christ. And so wives, the same stuff I said to husbands, you should look at this and go, I can't do that. I can't do that. That's right. So you submit. And what is the context? Be filled with the Spirit. So you get as fast as you can to Jesus because the goal of your marriage is to connect people to Jesus for life change. And it's the husband's goal in your life. It is your goal in your life. And while he's going to be responsible, you're ultimately accountable for your relationship with Jesus, women. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to, to follow your leadership, that you speak to us, that you give us your word, that you don't just let us try and guess at how this is supposed to go. And we can rebel. You've given us the freedom to do that. And we can think we know better. And we can go our own way and then deal with the consequences of all that. You're such a gracious Father. Because we know that you'll be right there when we need to turn to you, when we've tried all that. When we think that our marriage is supposed to deliver some fulfillment that only you can give us. When we think that we know better than you and we think that it's better to lead with authoritarian leadership or we think it's better to, to, to be manipulative and try and get our own way that we'll never get it if we don't make it happen on our own. And, and all the mess that that causes but we are so grateful to you that you love us so much you keep pursuing us, that you keep coming after us, that you give us grace more and more, and you call us to yourself. Help us to throw off all the stuff that does hinder, all the sin, all the ideas, all the cultural baggage that we carry. Fill us with your spirit so you transform our desires and transform our marriages. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.